evening. Welcome to RUF. Uh, my name is Nick Bratcher. I'm the campus minister here for RUF. I'm glad you've joined us this evening. Tonight, we're continuing on in our series that we're studying this semester called Songs That Shape Us. Uh, particularly, we're studying the Psalms, and we're in Psalm 13 tonight. We've called this series Songs That Shape Us because that really is what the Psalms are. They're songs that were meant to be sung by God's people, and as they sang them, God would effectively be giving his people words to describe him, themselves, and the world around them. The hope is, right, that as these words are sung, they are believed more deeply by those who sing them. And in other words, right, the Psalms are really words that God has given us to sing when we feel certain ways, right, when we are going through certain things designed to help us feel those emotions and experience those occasions in a way that honors and glorifies our Creator. Tonight's Psalm, Psalm 13, is a song for the occasion of despair, the feeling of despair. We don't use that word a lot, uh, admittedly. Uh, you, people don't ask you, how are you doing today? Despairing, you know, like you don't usually say that. But it, it is something that I think actually we all experience in life. We experience this emotion when we get a bad grade, when we get passed over for an internship, or a friend ghosts us for seemingly no reason, Right? Those are obvious examples uh, because they usually affect you directly. But there might even be less obvious examples right? when you might experience despair uh, because something else outside of yourself is in jeopardy. Right? You may attach a great deal of your identity and your worth to a, a cause or a political party or a brand. And th- if those things are uh, jeopardized or those things are struggling, you might feel despair in yourself. You might... Feel it when the cats lose to South Carolina, uh, right? And grown men call into KSR crying uh, because, of the, because of the behavior of a bunch of 18-year-olds, um, right? You, the truth is that we experience despair, this emotion, uh, you know, when we have this feeling that our circumstances, right, are outside of our control and have taken a turn for the worse, right? The world is crashing down around you but you feel powerless to stop it. Whether you're experiencing this right now or you're experiencing, you're going to experience in the future, and that's all of us, right? We're all going to experience this emotion. It's important to know that how you're supposed to do it when it comes your way. How are you going to get through that emotion? What does it look like to honor God in the middle of these moments and to be a human fully alive in the midst of experiencing that emotion? What are you to do in despair? That's our big question for the evening. Actually, if you're a note taker, how does God want us to despair? How are we to despair? Well, let's read Psalm 13 and find out how God wants us. God wants to shape our despair, starting in verse 1. It says this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray.
Dear God, I simply ask that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, let's dig into our passage this evening as we answer the question, how are we to despair? Look at me at verse one. Let's start, let's start with verse one. The psalmist begins by twice linking his feeling of despair to God's actions, right? Or lack thereof. He first asks God if he will forget him forever. Now, uh, this accusation of forgetfulness, it's not like you forgetting to lock your door on your way out of the house. It's not really about facts or tasks to be remembered. Instead, when the Bible talks about God's memory, it means his providential care for someone. It means his love for someone. For example, in Genesis 8, God is said to remember Noah's family as he saves them from the flood. Right? In, in 1 Samuel 1, after worshiping him, uh, God remembers Hannah and opens her barren womb to, re- to receive a son, Samuel. For God to forget the psalmist, then, is for God to withdraw his care from him, re- re- withdraw his care for him. And the psalmist simply re- reiterates the same point with different language in the latter part of verse 1. There, God is anthropomorphized, like uh, pictured as, as having human ca- capacities, right? Human hands, human nose, things like that. And he turns his face away from him. It's not that uh, God has a face, Right? But it's an oft-used phrase in other psalms, like Psalm 30, 44, and 88, to describe alienation from God, a cursing from God. Whatever is troubling the psalmist, he credits his situation right, ultimately to God's lack of care. At the end of the day, whatever is happening, whoever enemy is, whatever all that stuff is, ultimately, he says, it's because God has turned his face away from him. So what comes next in verse 2 really shouldn't surprise us. The psalmist takes counsel in his own soul. Look at me at verse 2. Look at me at verse 2. Some versions will also translate this as the psalmist wrestling with his thoughts. Either way, it's translated because he does not experience God's counsel and protection. Right, The first thing the psalmist does is he turns inward. When he no longer sees God at work on his behalf, his mind kicks into overdrive and his heart is in turmoil. Friends, we have a word for this, right? They had a word for this back then too, but uh, it's anxiety, right? That's what this is. It's anxiety. Stuck in a hopeless situation without remedy, all the possible scenarios of his own demise come rising to the forefront of his mind in the form of these questions. Maybe this is the enemy to which he refers in the latter half of verse 2, right? Uh, Maybe it's anxiety itself. But even if it's someone or something else, the point is clear. Without God anxiety starts to creep in, right? Worry begins to take over. If God is not in control, then the temptation will always be to put ourselves in the driver's seat, right? To seek our own way out, to make our own good fortune, right? And there's an alluring promise, right? In casting off God's care for us and depending only on ourselves, right? Uh, But the truth is being in control of your own life Right? Well, it seems to promise a lot, right? If, if, if I could just control everything, then I, I can keep hard things from coming my way. I can defeat my enemies. I can overcome whatever is troubling me, whatever is making me despair. But the truth is, being in control of your own life, it's an anxiety-inducing task. Right? Um, there, uh, during the Protestant Reformation, um, 
y'all may know what that is, but it's like Martin Luther sparked this reformation where uh, he like rebelled against the church in Rome and uh, over the idea that uh, Jesus died for our sins and that that uh, alone is our righteousness. Anyways, while he was, um, you know, while he was doing this, we read that in history books and we think, okay, good for him. But like every day that Luther lived essentially was a surprise because uh, most of the world at that time would have wanted to kill him. In fact, the whole church, the whole Roman Catholic church was after him. And uh, one of his best friends and biggest advisors was a man named Philip Melanchthon. And Philip was given to worry and anxiety, sometimes unable to even get out of bed. He would have such crippling anxiety due to the pressure and the fear he felt going into an unknown uh, day. The weight of reforming the church on his shoulders. He felt very acutely, if we fail in this, the church will not believe that Jesus really is enough for our sin forever. And he wakes up every day kind of in a cold sweat, panicking about it. And when this would happen, Luther would actually come over to his house, place his hand on his shoulder, and say, let Philip cease to rule the world. Let Philip cease to rule the world. It sounds great, turning inward to try and figure some way out of our circumstances to analyze and reanalyze our failures as, you know, a vow to never be hurt, never be vulnerable again. I'll never ask out another girl as long as I live. That one said no, and they'll all say no, they'll all hurt you, right? Or the opposite is true, right? Whatever thing you tell yourself is, I I will rule the world, you were never meant for that. Right? This means scheming constantly about how to get a boyfriend or girlfriend can be rebellion against God. Right? He has rightful rule over your life, and he can decide maybe it's best that you're single. Right? Or to be an equal offender, avoiding relationships out of a fear of being hurt can, do the, can be the exact same. It's about what's going on in here. Anxiety is you attempting to control something that you were not meant to control, something you can't control. And it promises a lot, but it's actually, it delivers nothing. Beating yourself up about a bad grade or worrying about the next test is you crowning yourself king over your own life. Stressing about how you're going to get enough work hours or how you're going to boost your resume is placing trust and control within yourself instead of trusting God, instead of leaving it to him. I will say as a caveat There is anxiety out there that's caused just by neurological disorders. I don't want to diminish that in any way. But prevailingly, a lot of times, at least some part of what we feel as anxiety, right, is this dynamic. These are rebellious ways of dealing with despair that this psalmist is uh, saying, right, uh, that we should abandon, right? Uh, He starts there, but look what he does with that move. Look again at verse 2. He starts with looking inward, but look again at verse two. The counsel of the soul is not the way forward, even according to the psalmist. He doesn't prescribe the anxious scheming, but is instead describing it and asking God instead to intervene, right? He's out of options. And so he asks, how long, not me, how long am I going to have to deal with this? No, no, no. How long, O Lord? You're in charge. You are the king, and I am not. He does not want to rule the world, though tempted to seize control, right? Looking inwardly, this prayer is evidence that the psalmist is seeking an alternative emotion 
to the anxiety that comes with control. Instead, that alternative comes in the next breath of verse 2. It's sorrow. Sorrow is the antidote to anxiety. This is actually our first answer to our big question this, this evening. How are we to despair? It's with sorrow. Start with sorrow. You'll notice that this uh, is not sadness over a sin that has been committed. None's mentioned. There's, it's not like he's sad because he did something wrong. There's no repentance necessary. Not all bad things that happen to people are because they've sinned. Right? You might think, oh, God's trying to get me. You might ask a lot of the same, same questions as the psalmist. How long, oh, Lord, was there something I did? But that's, this man doesn't say that. Like the man in John 9 who was simply born blind, Jesus said, uh, sometimes it's because you just live in a fallen world and things are not always going to break the way that you want them to. Right? Instead, this is a sorrow over the circumstances themselves. They seem bleak. Many commentators have observed that this psalm reads most easily on the lips of someone who probably is dealing with a deadly disease, something they can't cure, a terminal illness like leprosy or or cancer, needing a cure from God alone. Now, I'm going to make one uh, point of application in terms of like what it means to be sad, Uh, but I don't want you to miss it because of its simplicity. Here's what this this psalm at least says about moving towards sadness in our despair instead of anxiety, instead of trying to control more. Here's what it says. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be sad. Uh, some Christians think, right, that, that we should just be happy all the time, right? Jesus, Jesus conquered the grave. Like, we're all headed for heaven one day. Everything's going to be made right. There's no reason to be sad. There's no reason... Why are you all down in the dumps, right? What I would say to that is that God has given us this psalm to pray to him. God has given us this psalm to sing. He's not appalled at our sadness. In fact, he's inviting us into it. He knows sadness and is asking us to embrace it, to know it like he does. Now, here's the thing. What, what do we do in the midst of our sadness? Okay, Nick. Uh, I'm experiencing despair. Instead of reaching and gripping for control and inducing anxiety, I can just be sad about the things that have happened. What do I, okay, what does that look like? I've advocated for relinquishing control, but what does that look like to do so? Well, look with me at the end of verse two. Look with me at the end of verse two. The psalmist claims that an enemy is being exalted over him. Who or what the enemy is is not important. Uh, It might be springing from a real life enemy, you know, maybe in a battlefield or something. Could be a difficult circumstance, as I said, could be a disease of some sort. The author has left the identity of this enemy intentionally vague, probably so that this psalm can be sung by the corporate worship of Israel. Anyone can sing this song, whatever they're experiencing, as long as it's despairing, right? Like we're discussing it tonight. But the existence of this exalted enemy does raise a question, something I've kind of glanced over up till now. If it's God's lack of care that is causing what's happening here, what is actually causing the psalmist's distress? It kind of introduces a question. Is it the enemy he's talking about, or actually is it God's lack of care? Right? After all, who is doing the exalting? Who's lifting up this enemy? If God is in control of all things, then surely if he's talking directly to him, God has the ability to make it stop. Right? Which, is, which is causing the poor circumstance and despair in the first place? Well, here's the thing. The text is claiming both. Right? It's not either or, it's both. This is kind of a tricky subject. 
So, you know, if you want to talk more about this over coffee, I would love to do that with you sometime. But the psalmist here is hinting at a concept called God's sovereignty. It's called sovereignty. In the worldview of the Bible, God is ultimately in control of everything. And that's why the psalmist can uh, simultaneously blame his troubles on God being absent. How long are you going to wait? Right. And also on this enemy who's plaguing him. Uh, it, it is biblically accurate to say that God ultimately is the cause of all things. All things. Nothing happens outside God's plan. He is surprised by nothing and deterred by nothing. Everything falls out exactly according to his plan. But on the other hand, the Bible also affirms that we have real agency in this life, that you have free will, right? That we make decisions that matter, and the Bible denies some sort of bleak determinism where nothing you do matters. It's already done, right? These decisions, human agency, right? There's something called second causes. While God is the first cause of all things, he doesn't cause all second causes. That might sound crazy. might sound like, okay, you're saying the word cause a lot. What I'm saying is this, that uh, simply the Bible claims, like this psalm, that, uh, that God is responsible for everything in his plan and yet not the author of evil, right? That he superintends everything, but that doesn't mean that he is the cause of your pain and suffering. He might permit them, but that doesn't mean that he causes them. God can save this psalmist from his circumstances, but he's not the author of them. That is a second cause which belongs to the enemy and to sin. All right, some of you all might be stuck on that idea. Like I said, I'd love to talk to you more about that if that's, if that's something you're like, I just don't understand why God could even allow suffering at all. We'd love to talk about that. But I'll say this uh, to sum up, and the psalmist comes to the same conclusion. Here's what we can't ignore about this psalm, even in the midst of, of this discussion. God's sovereignty is a good thing. Well, however you might think like God, uh, you know, allowing evil might be a, a problem. I will say that it's a good, hopeful truth according to this psalmist. We know this about God's sovereignty because it's the fundamental fuel for prayer, right? Why bother praying? Why bother writing this psalm at all if God's not in control of the circumstance, Right? He, there is a confidence that God is cold, ultimately in control of all things, even evil things that fall out according to second causes. Right? It means that he is powerful enough to answer any of the questions of his people, any of the requests of his people. So the psalmist rightly prays. Right? In, the, in, in, in the midst of his pain, right, he turns to the person who can fix it and trusts that he can and would. Look at me at verses 3 through 4. Look at me in verses three through four. The psalmist does not wallow in the circumstances he unpacked in verses one through two. Instead, he's moved by God's sovereign control into praying directly to him, right? He trusts God. At the end of the day, that's who he wants to talk to about this. Now, the ESV translation obscures this a bit in verse three, but the word consider that's there in verse three is actually the Hebrew word for look like with your eyes. It literally says, look, look, and answer me. Right? The psalmist has accurately assessed his spiritual condition. Whereas in verse one, he says that he feels God's face turned away from him. Right? He asks now for God to turn his gaze upon him. Right? To care for him once again. Now that he has come to terms with his lack of control, right? His, his sadness 
and God's sole ability to save him from this distress, he naturally pivots to asking God for help. Right? The fancy theological word for this is he asks God in supplication. Right? Uh, luckily, that's also an S word. Right? It's our second answer to our question, how are we to despair? Right? I said we're supposed to despair with sorrow and with supplication. Right? Praying to the person who actually is in charge. If we aren't in charge and we're sad, right? talk to the person who is. Ultimately, right, the psalmist does this because God is powerful in a way that he is not. Right? It is God who is able to light up his eyes and rescue him from death and defeat his enemies. And he knows that's who's really powerful. When I was a kid, uh, I watched uh, pro wrestling as a kid. I- I'm from rural Kentucky. Every, like, not only would I watch the stuff on TV, but I would go to like, the local community center and watch like, overweights, like 45-year-old men like, in the little tights. And they're like, yeah, and they're all on roids. Anyways, uh, at, right, so I'm, I'm from, that's, that's where I'm from. If you're from a similar place, you know what I'm talking about. Well, at one point in the, in the WCW narrative as a kid, there was this group of, like, bad guy wrestlers called the NWO, the New World Order. These guys were terrible. They were real bad. Just bullies. They were mean to other wrestlers. You know, even, like, the women on the show, they were so rude to them. And I remember one time in the middle of, uh, one of, uh, you know, one of the NWO members was like, they were at this like diner or something and they were like cursing out this waitress, being just terrible to her, rude and stuff. And then all of a sudden, one of the guys, when he's like kind of like, you know, uh, badgering this, wait- wait- uh, this waitress, actually like, harassing her, uh, he just stops, like suddenly just kind of like stops. And the whole group of them start being really nice to her suddenly, right? They're like, Oh, uh, yeah, you're going to get a big tip. Like, you know, they start acting really nice. Uh, and uh, it's kind of weird. Their change of behavior when you're watching it on screen is kind of puzzling. That was until the NWO guys kind of scattered off the screen. They slink away off the screen. And then coming behind the waitress is none other than Sting, who if you don't know Sting, he had like like this like black and white face paint that kind of looked like a scorpion and he carried this like black baseball bat and he would like bludgeon people with it. It was amazing. Right. Uh, you know, and here's the thing, uh, you know, he walks in the frame and you suddenly understand why these evil things, why these evil people were suddenly becoming nice. They were scared of sting, right? Not the waitress. It didn't matter about her. The only wrestler who could beat them was what they were afraid of. He bent the knee to no one. No one was more powerful than him. He's, you know, and, and so when these men saw Sting, they decided they'd better toe the line. As funny, you know, as implausible as that story is, like, you, you know wrestling's fake, right? Don't tell, I, everyone knows it. Don't blow it, okay? Right? Here's, here's what I'm saying is you've got to find yourself a Sting, right? In this life, you aren't in control. Like, that we, we all know that deep down, right? That you can, there's so much stuff you can't control. And what I'm telling you is then your only option is to find a sting, is to find something that can control it. And what this psalmist is crying out, is modeling to us and inviting us to do the same, is that God is a match for all the world can throw at you, right? You're no match for all the world can throw at you, but God is. He can be your sting, right? I, I want to invite you to believe that this evening. This psalm wants to invite you to trust him, to light up your eyes and ensure that you are not defeated. Now, here's the thing, right? All right, when I'm despair, when I, 
when I feel like life is not going my way, okay, I, I won't try and control. I'll be sad and I'll ask God, I'll, I'll do your supplication thing, that fancy word you keep saying, right? I'll do those things. But like Nick, man, that's a big ask, right? To trust God in this way. How, how am I supposed to do that? How do I know that he'll come through for me? Look at me at verses five and six. Look at me at verses five and six. The psalmist here explains his motivation for praying to God, right? He's not just trusting in some abstract theory. He trusts in God's steadfast love. This steadfast love is the same love that was promised to Israel as God uh, rescued them from slavery, brought them out of Egypt to the foot of Mount Sinai where they were supposed to enjoy a relationship with him forever. Exodus 34 depicts the scene. God passes before Moses and says of himself, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping that steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. If God delivered his people on that day, the psalmist has every reason to believe he can be relied on in his present circumstances. As he says in verse 6, God has already dealt bountifully with him. Things, I mean, it's, the, the, it takes maybe 30 seconds to read this psalm. Maybe it took him five minutes to write it, maybe a little bit longer. But the truth is, it's not, things didn't just change in between the two stanzas, right? It's that he's so sure of God's steadfastness that he is able to sing through his despair, right? It's that he knows he's channeling that into a song and he writes it for us to sing with him, knowing that uh, God has already rescued his people. He's been faithful in the past. He will be faithful in the future. And that's our third and final answer to our question, right? How are we to deal with despair? With song, right? With, with sorrow, I said, with supplication and with song, uh, singing in the midst of our sorrows. Uh, Joni Erickson Tata, uh, you know, who 50 years ago, actually last week, um, was left a quadriplegic after a diving accident, lost uh, all ability to move her, her arms or her legs. Uh, and uh, after her accident, after her diving accident, uh, every day, she loved riding horses before she was made a quadriplegic. And every day, uh, she would be at, she would ask to be taken to the riding ring uh, that was near her house, and she would watch people ride horses around the track uh, that was by her house. And uh, one day she had a friend that was with her, and uh, they said, you know, I see you go there every day. Why are you torturing yourself? You, you just aren't like... Like, I don't know why you go and you, and you watch somebody else do this thing that you long to do. And she responded this way. Uh, I'm not torturing myself. I just don't want to forget how to ride. I'm not torturing myself. I just don't want to forget how to ride. Even in the midst of the greatest sorrows, Christians maintain that we have hope. Right? Joni knew this, that God was committed to her and that, she would, that God would one day restore her body. And so even watching something that is kind of painful for her, she can sing in the midst of it, knowing God is ultimately going to make this right. And I know because of what he's already done in Jesus. Way better than uh, just leading people out of physical slavery in Egypt. God has delivered you out of sin and death itself. Right? How do we know that God listens to prayers like this psalm? How can we know that God has dealt and will deal bountifully, 
bountifully with us to the point where we can sing in the midst of our despair, it's because he has already done, already suffered all of the things that could possibly happen to you. And he's done the worst of it and come out on the other side, right? Jesus became poor. Jesus denied the bounty promised to the righteous, uh, you know, promised the righteous one who trusts in the Lord's steadfast love. He denied those things and took on himself instead the wrath of God. The wrath of God owed to God's enemies when he died on the cross. Uh, You know, such were some of us, right? The truth is without Christ, such were some of us. We all are by nature enemies of God, uh, objects of his wrath apart from Christ. He should answer our prayers like this. um, No. Like the truth is, I think that's what we're all afraid of is that we'll say like, God, well, how long is this going to happen? He'll go forever because you, you stink. Like you're the worst. You probably caused it yourself, right? And the truth is that is not how God responds. He invites us to pray like this. If you're here tonight and you place your faith in Christ's righteousness given to you and that you could not earn yourself, you can be assured that even in the midst of your sorrow, you can pray to God and be heard. You can live because Jesus died. You get to sing because Jesus cried. You are rich because Jesus was made poor, right? You have... Uh, You can sing and pray with this psalmist no matter what despair you find yourself in because God has been faithful to you, right, in Jesus, and he will be faithful to you moving forward, right? All we have to meet that with is, uh, you know, relinquishing our control, embracing sorrow, asking him for help in supplication, and singing in the midst of our sorrows, knowing that despair won't have the last word. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for uh, this.